It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On a hot July morning in 1885, a frightened young woman dragged her injured nine-year-old son through the streets of Paris. The boy had been bitten by a rabid dog and was in danger of contracting rabies. And in 1885, exposure to rabies was a death sentence. But all hope was not lost. The mother knew of a scientist named Louis Pasteur, who lived in the Latin Quarter of Paris. A rumor had it that he'd been testing an experimental rabies vaccine and might be able to save her child from the fatal disease. At the crack of dawn, they arrived at the laboratory of Louis Pasteur. The mother and son worked their way around large metal kennels and passed bubbling test tubes into the scientist's main operating room. Pasteur summoned two doctors to analyze the boy's injuries. His flesh was twisted from the force of the dog's teeth, and his blood tested positive for rhabdoviridae, the virus that leads to rabies. Now, Louis had developed a rabies vaccine, but he'd only successfully inoculated chickens and certain mammals. His first two human trials had been utter failures. Worse, Louis wasn't a licensed doctor and could get into severe trouble for performing the experiment. The mother didn't care. She urged Pasteur to try anything to save her son's life. Moved by her pleas, Pasteur agreed to test the vaccine once more. With a final prayer, he injected the boy. This is Historical Figures, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. You can find episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream historical figures for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type historical figures in the search bar. Today we're discussing the father of microbiology, Louis Pasteur, renowned for his discoveries about vaccines, microbial fermentation, and the eponymous pasteurization. Pasteur saved hundreds of lives during his own. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Now, back to the life of Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur was born into a poor Catholic family on December 27, 1822, in Dolgeura, France. His father, Jean-Joseph Pasteur, worked as a tanner while his mother, Jeanne Antoinette Roquet, ran the household. 
Louis's parents were poor and uneducated, but they believed that proper schooling would help their children build a better life. Jean-Joseph Pasteur once said, we will make of Louis an educated man. So in 1826, when Louis was four, his family moved from Jura to Arbois, France, so that Louis could attend primary school at École Primaire Arbois. Despite his parents' urging, Louis wasn't very interested in academics as a young boy. He preferred painting, sketching, fishing, really any excuse to get away from his textbooks. He enjoyed wandering through rivers and drawing portraits of his neighbors and friends. But Louis's life wasn't all school and artistic exploration. The poor living standards in Victorian France meant that disease was common, and even healthy people needed to take extreme precautions to protect themselves against infection. Toxic air spewed from industrial factories, rabid dogs ran through the streets, and a minor cut could mean infection and, often, death. In order to make it to school, Louis had to bundle himself in rags to stave off the cold and poisonous air. Louis's sister, Jeanne Emily, was a victim of these poor living conditions. In 1829, when she was three years old, she contracted a viral infection called encephalitis and was left permanently paralyzed for the rest of her life. Today, this disease is easily treated with medication, but the antibiotics simply didn't exist in Victorian-era Europe. In October of 1831, a rabid wolf began roaming the lands around Arbois. Because the disease triggered heightened aggression, the wolf attacked and bit at least eight locals, transmitting the dreaded rabies virus. Rabies often causes excess salivation, muscle spasms, and confusion. Without treatment, it leads to tremors, fever, and a slow and painful death. In 1831, with no way to cure or treat the disease, the injured and infected knew of only one solution. Still bleeding, each bite victim rushed directly to the blacksmith shop, where the smith cauterized their wounds with a red-hot branding iron. Their hope was that the heat would kill the virus before it could spread through the body. The treatment was painful, but still preferable to the ravages of rabies. Louis lived just a few houses down from the blacksmith's shop and could hear the screams all day and night. Even worse, rabies had a slow incubation period. As the months passed, the townspeople had no way of determining whether their extreme treatment had worked. This particular event left a major impression on young Louis. He was particularly troubled later when he learned that each of the affected people were eventually euthanized so as to save them from a slow, agonizing death. Louis remained in Arbois until October 1838, when his parents encouraged him to move once again to receive the best education. So 16-year-old Louis traveled to Paris alone to attend secondary school at the institution Barbet. But Paris wasn't a good match for the young student. He loathed the city and actually returned home after only two weeks because he was homesick. A few months later, he resumed his education at the Royal College in Besançon. It was much closer to Arbois, and Louis was finally able to settle into his studies. 
Hopping from school to school was financially taxing on the Pasteur family. They struggled to keep food on the table during this period of Louis' life. Eventually, their financial burden began to weigh on Louis' conscience, and he vowed to become a better student for their sake. In order to do so, Louis spent more time learning practical subjects like mathematics and science. He promised his parents he would make up for his misspent teenage years. After three years at the Royal College in Besançon, his hard work paid off and Louis earned both a Bachelor's of Art and a Bachelor's of Science degree in 1842. Following this success, Louis turned his attention toward graduate school. In 1842, after spending a year studying and preparing, he took an entrance exam for the prestigious École Normale Supérieure. His scores were low, but he passed. Louis blamed his art and hobbies for taking up too much of his time. He said, I would rather be first in college than receive 10,000 compliments about my art. Although Louis could have enrolled, he wanted to prove to himself that he was ready for advanced education, so he deferred. For another full year, he studied for the entrance exam while working as a tutor at the Royal College in Besançon. In 1843, 20-year-old Louis took the entrance exam for École Normale Supérieure once again. He sat down in a stuffy lecture hall in Paris and gave the test everything he had. This time, he received high marks. But the hard work was just beginning. Pursuing a Master of Science degree would mean he had to hold his own with over 700 of France's greatest young scientific minds. Fortunately, Louis found a mentor and friend at École Normale Supérieure that changed his life. Jean-Baptiste André Dumas. Dumas was a renowned chemist, best known for his extremely precise methods of determining the atomic masses and densities of substances. Louis wasn't required to study under Dumas, but he was so interested in the man's lectures that he petitioned to join the class. Soon, the two were spending countless hours together talking about the details of various molecules and the arrangement of the elements. Within the year, Louis became Dumas' official teaching assistant, an honor that was awarded to only the very brightest students. Dumas saw in Louis a passion for chemistry that rivaled his own and the potential to become a great scientist. After two years under Dumas, Louis Pasteur graduated from École Normale Supérieure with a Master's of Science degree in 1845. A year later, he was appointed as a professor of physics at the College de Tournon. Louis enjoyed teaching, but he also began to perform bizarre experiments in his free time. He became wildly interested in crystallography, the study of the physical geometry of crystals. For hours, he would collect crystal fragments and examine them under microscopes. It was during one of these sessions at the College de Tournon that he made his first major discovery, one that revolutionized the scientific community's understanding of molecular substances. Up next, we'll explore Louis' breakthrough as a molecular scientist. Now, back to the story. In 1846, 23-year-old Louis Pasteur was working as a science professor at the College de Tournon. 
But during his free time, he fell in love with crystallography, the study of the physical geometry of crystals. He was especially interested in crystals that formed in wine when the liquid was boiled too long. Without getting too technical, when wine is boiled, it produces paratartaric acid. This acid gives wine a sour taste and produces two types of crystals inside the solution. These crystals were fascinating to Louis because of their physical geometry. When Pasteur looked at pairs of crystals under a microscope, he noticed they were mere images of each other. With this discovery, Louis realized that the exterior shape of a crystal corresponded to its molecular constitution. This has since become one of the founding principles behind molecular science and synthetic chemistry. The following spring, Louis published this discovery in a thesis called A Study of the Phenomena Related to the Rotational Polarization of Liquids and the Application of the Rotational Polarization of Liquids to the Resolution of Several Problems in Chemistry. In this dissertation, he explained that two inverse crystals coexisted in the same acid. For his discovery, Louis was awarded a double doctorate in chemistry and physics in late 1847. This achievement also earned him a flurry of job offers. Louis joined the staff at the University of Strasbourg in France as a professor of chemistry in 1849. Louis adored the city. He claimed Strasbourg was a city of many resources for chemistry, but he also had a more personal connection to the school. Less than a year into his tenure at the University of Strasbourg, he met assistant professor Marie Laurent. She was sweet-natured, but even more importantly, she could hold her own in scientific conversations with Louis. Louis immediately fell in love, as did Marie. In her journals, Marie wrote romantic descriptions of the young chemist, saying, His admirably bright eyes shine in a gray-blue hue like a certain gem from Salon that reflects the changing light. Their feelings were so intense, Louis proposed to Marie mere weeks after their first meeting. She accepted his proposal, and they were married on May 29, 1849, less than a year after they had met. He was 27 and she was 23. They shared a personal and professional life, as Marie contributed to many of Louis's greatest discoveries. They would have their first child, Jeanne, in 1850, and go on to have four more children. Now a married man, Louis worked hard as a teacher and mentor to young chemistry students at the University of Strasbourg, France, for the next few years. He excelled as a professor, and within three years, he was acting as the chair of the entire chemistry department. A few years later, Louis made his second great discovery. In 1855, he was approached by Louis-Emmanuel Bigot-Tillois, the father of one of his students. As a distiller of beetroot alcohol, Bigot-Tillois was upset that his liquor became acidic and smelled foul shortly after it fermented, completely ruining the taste. He appealed to Louis to solve the problem and spurred him to conduct a variety of experiments on alcoholic fermentation. Louis surveyed samples of the spoiled alcohol for hours on end. He analyzed the geometric structures and calculated the moment the liquid turned. But his breakthrough came when he examined the liquid at a microscopic level. 
he discovered living organisms inside the beverage. He hypothesized that these organisms seeped into the alcohol and created the sour smell. To confirm this theory, Louis tried to remove the microorganisms from the liquids. Through a series of tests, he discovered that briefly heating beverages between 122 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, then cooling the liquids, destroyed certain dangerous microorganisms, or diseases, as Louis called them. Unfortunately for bigot this process did very little to improve the taste of beetroot alcohol, but it did effectively purify the liquid and help extend its shelf life. Louis had just discovered the foundation to a process that would later be named after him, pasteurization. Though pasteurization can be applied to a variety of beverages, including fruit juice and water, it's most widely used today to make milk safe for consumption. Well, you'd think with a name like pasteurization that Louis Pasteur would have pioneered the most popular use for the process, but the truth is a little more complicated. Louis discovered the specific temperature necessary to kill microorganisms, but he didn't apply this theory to milk. Instead, he continued to explore its effect on various alcohols. Milk pasteurization wasn't realized until 1886, when later chemists built on Pasteur's discoveries. Still, Louis Pasteur was thrilled that he could kill the microscopic organisms inside alcohol. In the mid-19th century, wine and other spirits were at high risk of going sour or otherwise being contaminated. But with Pasteur's new process, alcohol producers could ensure a safer product. In 1855, he submitted his findings to the Académie des Sciences, one of the premier scientific institutions in Paris at the time. He described how heating and cooling was the secret to safer alcoholic fermentation, but the Academy didn't share his optimism about the potential widespread use of his new method. They rejected his request for funding to further refine his process. But Louis didn't lose hope. In 1857, he moved back to Paris and began to give presentations about the role of organisms living inside wine and beer as the director of scientific studies at École Normale Supérieure. From 1857 to 1860, Louis operated out of a lab in the attic of École Normale Supérieure, where he furthered his investigation into fermentation processes in wine. Despite the lack of funding, Louis believed in his work. If he perfected his method, he might be able to protect future generations from foodborne illnesses. Unfortunately, Louis's work wouldn't be completed in time to save his own family. In 1859, Jeanne, his oldest daughter, died of typhoid. Louis was devastated by the loss. He had been researching the very science that could have saved her life, but he was too late. Committed to preventing more innocent deaths, he doubled down on his research into how to prevent deadly diseases. His grief drove him to a discovery that would save hundreds of future lives and prevent more children from dying as his daughter had. In 1861, Louis observed that oxygen played a major role in the process of fermentation. 
Well, fermentation is caused by yeast interacting with sugar, breaking down that sugar and turning it into alcohol. Louis observed that when oxygen passed through the wine, yeast cell growth increased while fermentation slowed down. This was groundbreaking. Louis had already discovered that beer, wine, and other alcoholic drinks would spoil when they became a host to too many microorganisms. If oxygen could be removed from the equation, microorganism growth would be minimized, and the alcohol would both ferment faster and last longer. Well, the fact that oxygen reduces alcoholic fermentation has since been named the Pasteur effect. To this day, distillers try to reduce the amount of oxygen as much as possible while making alcohol in order to avoid the Pasteur effect. With his discoveries regarding the Pasteur effect, Louis was able to investigate and develop the pathogenic theory of medicine, or more simply, germ theory. Louis proposed that diseases were caused by the presence and actions of specific microorganisms. These organisms were everywhere, inside our food, in our medicine, even inside our bodies. This may sound like simple science to us, but in the Victorian era, germs were a foreign concept. Pasteur wasn't the first to champion a belief in microorganisms, but he was one of the early pioneers in their study. As you can imagine, knowledge of the existence of germs deeply affected Louis. Learning that almost every surface on Earth was covered in deadly microscopic organisms, Pasteur became deeply mysophobic, or pathologically afraid of contamination. For the rest of his life, Louis kept physical contact to a minimum and refused to even shake hands with people. His discoveries may have changed the way humanity understood diseases, but they ruined his life. Regarding germs, he said, this water, this sponge, this lint with which you wash or cover a wound may deposit germs which have the power of multiplying rapidly within the tissue. If I had the honor of being a surgeon, not only would I use none but perfectly clean instruments, but I would clean my hands with the greatest care, and I would use only lint, bandages, and sponges previously exposed to a temperature of 1300 to 1500 degrees. Once again, the notion of sterilization seems obvious to us, but the scientific community was initially resistant to this way of thinking. After all, Pasteur was a chemist, not a doctor. Many scientists rejected the notion that biology and chemistry could be related, and Louis lacked the qualifications to be taken seriously. An issue of the newspaper La Presse mocked him for his new theory. They wrote, I am afraid that the experiments you quote, Monsignor Pasteur, will turn against you. The world into which you wish to take is really too fantastic. But Pasteur didn't back down. He was so passionate about sterilization that he began to print pamphlets about sanitation and post them around Paris. These pamphlets criticized modern doctors and demanded new cleanliness standards for hospitals. Next, he began to develop hundreds of laboratory gadgets to assist in the destruction of microorganisms. This included the Pasteur pipette, which was the world's first filtered pipette, and the Pasteur filter, one of the world's first water filters. 
But Louis' tireless work couldn't prevent his family from another tragedy. Camille, Louis and Marie's youngest daughter, died of typhoid in 1865 when she was only two years old. After this loss, Louis was even more determined to fight diseases like typhoid. But with the scientific community still hesitant to accept his radical theories, Louis needed a way to prove microorganisms were real. Fortunately, his chance came in late 1865. In the early 19th century, the silk trade had been a booming enterprise across Europe, but the worms responsible for producing silk began to develop brown spots and die by the thousands. In 1865, silkworms were producing less than a thousandth of what they had made a decade earlier in 1853. Silk farmers didn't have a clue what was going on. Louis suspected that microorganisms were to blame and got to work on solving the great silkworm mystery. For the next three years, he collected silkworms and carted them back to his lab for study. His wife, Marie, focused on breeding and raising worms while Louis investigated their pathology. Louis studied their skin and carefully witnessed the moment the individuals died. Some worms succumbed within a few days of exposure to a mysterious disease. Others took weeks to perish. Upon further examination, Louis discovered two diseases were affecting the worms. The first was a hereditary disease called pebrine, caused by parasites. The other disease was called flashery, that is caused from infected leaves that the worms were eating. To combat the two diseases, Louis needed two solutions. First, Louis ordered pebrine-afflicted worms to be kept separate from healthy worms, so the illness couldn't be passed on. Next, he found that the spread of flashery was being compounded by the worm's excrement and was infecting the worm's eggs. He showed farmers how to purify the worm's food supply and how to create a new, less humid breeding environment that prevented the disease from spreading. The living standards for the silkworms dramatically reduced the fatalities and brought silk production back from the edge of extinction. With this achievement, the scientific community began to come around to the idea that microorganisms might, in fact, be real. But Louis didn't have long to celebrate his success. In 1868, when Louis was 46 years old, he suffered a stroke that paralyzed the left side of his body. To many, this would be an indication that it was time to slow down. But Louis was too determined to give up his hunt against germs. In fact, while he was still in the hospital, he had his colleagues arrange a mobile lab so he could continue his work from bed. Over the next few years, Louis published a few more papers on the effects of microorganisms in beer and wine, but it wouldn't be until 1879 that his next big discovery was made. In 1879, chickens around France were dying in droves from a cholera outbreak. Louis collected a dozen or so chickens and began to run his tests. He wanted to witness the effects of cholera, so he ordered one of his assistants, Charles Chamberlain, to inject the chickens with cholera bacteria and carefully monitor how they died. Only that's not what happened. Chamberlain accidentally injected the chickens a month later than planned. 
He apparently forgot about the poultry with too many other tasks to complete. This meant that the cholera bacteria that was injected into the birds was already aged. Louis was very upset with Chamberlain until he saw the effect the aged bacteria had on the birds. Although the birds had been injected with a deadly virus, they suffered only mild symptoms. But here's where it gets strange. When Louis injected the same chickens with fresh bacteria, the birds didn't develop cholera. The exposure to the weakened strain of the virus had made them immune to the disease. Louis and his team replicated the experiment. They waited for the bacteria to age for a few days before they injected the birds. Once again, the chickens were immune to fresh cholera bacterium. Louis hypothesized that oxygen had reduced the effect of the cholera virus and had actually equipped the host with an immunity to the disease. Completely by accident, Louis and Chamberlain had created the first laboratory-produced vaccine. They were on the verge of revolutionizing modern medicine. Up next, we'll hear how Louis shared this cutting-edge technology with the world. Now back to the story. In 1870, when Louis Pasteur was 48 years old, he and his assistant Charles Chamberlain discovered that aged bacteria helped build up the recipient's immune system. It's important to note that Louis didn't invent the first vaccine. Edward Jenner had already discovered the smallpox vaccine in 1796. He'd coined the term vaccine from the word vine, or cowpox vaccine. Jenner's experiments had proven how the relatively mild disease cowpox could be used to boost a person's immunity to the much more deadly smallpox. But Louis was the first to explain why the science worked and that the practice of using certain strains of disease to help inoculate people against a more deadly disease had applications beyond just smallpox. He proved that microorganisms were to blame for many illnesses and that scientists could make vaccines for virtually any bacterial disease. This discovery had the potential to revolutionize how the world fought diseases, but Louis needed a way to share the science convincingly. He decided to raise awareness through an incredibly graphic and public display. In 1881, Louis staged a demonstration of his laboratory-produced vaccine in action. He separated a herd of sheep into two groups. One group he inoculated with aged anthrax bacteria, the other he left alone. Weeks later, he injected both groups with fresh anthrax. After a brief incubation period of a few days, every single non-inoculated sheep died. The sheep with the anthrax vaccine remained healthy. Following this presentation, the scientific community's feelings toward vaccines began to change. Vaccines were increasingly seen as practical. But Pasteur wasn't done. He wanted to see how far his discovery could go. So he turned his attention toward rabies, the disease that had ravaged so many in his childhood. If Louis could somehow neutralize the rabies virus, he may be able to use strains of it to create a vaccine. However, rabies was different from cholera and anthrax because it was a viral infection instead of a bacterial one. While bacteria survives outside a body, 
A virus is a parasite and can only thrive by infecting the cells of a host. Thus, viruses are usually more deadly and harder to fight. Louis knew his process worked against bacterium, but viruses were a new frontier. One of Louis's peers, Axel Munta, recalled how brave Louis was while distilling this virus. Though Louis was pathologically disturbed by germs, Munta recalled that Pasteur himself was absolutely fearless. Anxious to secure a sample of saliva straight from the jaws of the rabid dog, I once saw him with a glass tube held between his lips draw a few drops of the deadly saliva from the mouth of a rabid bulldog. Once he had a collection of saliva, Louis then aged the virus and injected it into other dogs. The saliva alone didn't prove strong enough to create immunity, and the test subjects all developed rabies. Pasteur needed something more concentrated. He later discovered that the causative agents of the pathogen seemed to migrate from the site of the infection to the brain and spinal cord of the host. Louis hypothesized that if he introduced the pathogen directly into the brain, he could induce an extreme case of rabies more quickly. This, in turn, created a more concentrated infection in the brain tissue. Louis could then use that infected tissue to generate an effective vaccine. Louis only ever tested his vaccine on animals. That was until May 2nd, 1885. A Parisian named Girard had been bitten by a dog, and his doctors feared he would develop rabies. The staff at Necker Hospital invited Pasteur to come test his vaccine. Louis administered the first, weakest dose, but Girard's doctors intervened before Louis could give the subsequent injections. They'd performed follow-up tests on Girard and determined that he'd never contracted the rabies virus. Even worse, Girard grew ill in the days after Louis's injection. Louis ceased his treatment, and after a few days, Girard recovered and was released from the hospital. Louis had another chance to test his vaccine a month and a half later on June 22, 1885. An 11-year-old girl named Julie Antoinette Pougon checked into the hospital of St. Denis. Unlike Girard, Pougon was unquestionably infected with rabies, and she'd already begun to exhibit symptoms. His studies had only been on pre-symptomatic animals, and Louis didn't know if his vaccine would work on the raving girl. Nevertheless, he tested the inoculations. Louis only administered two injections before Pougon succumbed to the disease on June 23rd. Weeks later, on July 6, 1885, 63-year-old Pasteur awoke to the cries of nine-year-old Joseph Meister outside his home. The boy had been bitten 14 times by a rabid dog. His terrified mother begged Louis to do something. Louis was nervous. His two previous tests had failed. He still didn't have a medical license and could get in legal trouble for the unauthorized injection. Louis called two doctors to examine Joseph. The physicians agreed. Joseph was at high risk of contracting rabies. Without treatment, he would certainly die. Deciding it was worth the risk, Louis agreed to treat the boy. He administered the injection and prayed for success. Joseph received a total of 13 injections over 11 days. By October 1885, over three months since his first treatment, 
Joseph was officially determined to be rabies-free. In time, Joseph Meister would come to be known as the first person to ever be successfully inoculated against rabies. Later that month, Louis reported his discovery to a board at the Académie de Médecins, and the vaccine was pronounced a triumph. By that point, Louis was already something of an academic celebrity, but his success with vaccines brought him international fame. Beginning in the fall of 1885, hundreds of people from around the globe came to visit the French chemist, eager to receive one of his life-saving vaccines. In 1887, Louis' health took a turn for the worse. He suffered his second stroke at the age of 65. Pasteur's colleagues in the Académie des Sciences elected to recognize their friend for his incredible work in medicine. They drew up a proposal for a new clinic that specialized in infectious diseases. By the end of 1887, the French government approved the construction of a new center called the Paris Institut Pasteur, or the Paris Pasteur Institute. Thanks to fundraising efforts, the hospital was entirely not-for-profit. By 1888, the center was open to the public. Their charitable guidelines ensured that even the poorest Parisians could receive treatment. The institute hosted researchers who built on Louis' research to continue to develop treatments and vaccines against all infectious diseases. The institute was one of Louis' greatest legacies, but he would not live much longer to see it in action. His health was in steep decline by early 1890. He suffered his third stroke in 1894 at the age of 72. A year later, on September 28, 1895, Louis passed away at the age of 73. On October 5, 1895, the French government organized a funeral for the legendary scientist at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. His hearse was garnered in tricolored drapery and drawn by six stallions. He was laid to rest beneath the Paris Pasteur Institute. Louis' legacy lives on to this day. His discoveries have saved millions of lives, and his breakthroughs in vaccine science have prevented countless illnesses. The institute that bears his name is still active today and is currently staffed by 2,700 leading specialists from over 70 different countries. It's considered incredible for a scientist to make one great discovery in their lifetime, yet Louis Pasteur made several. His research on germs, fermentation, and vaccination revolutionized medicine and his lifelong commitment to fighting illness improved the lives of billions of people. Next time you have a cold glass of milk, be sure to thank the father of microbiology. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Historical Figures, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream historical figures on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type historical figures in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Historical Figures is written by Michael Allen Herman and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.